A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, Offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome to the Football Writers Podcast, featuring me, Mike Calvin, Miguel Delaney of the Independent, and Paul Hayward, the author and columnist. The January transfer window marked the end of the beginning for Newcastle United. 91 million has been spent on five new signings, as the season has been compressed into a single ambition, the avoidance of relegation. The pressure that places on Eddie Howe promises to be suffocating. The no excuses era begins on Tuesday night, when Frank Lampard takes Everton to St James's Park. Expectation will be off the scale. Support. Could that be counterproductive? Well, they can't have it both ways, really, because if it's the richest club in the world, £91 million is nothing to them, it's loose change. So Eddie Howe needn't feel that those purchases in the January transfer window uh, place any more pressure on him than he's under already. They bought quite strongly, they bought defensively well, so obviously Eddie Howe's plan is to is to stop them getting beaten and to try to, you know, eke out results with a much stronger defensive base. The other advantage he has is that he wasn't the first choice. They tried to hire Unai Emery, so he's not there as the messiah. He's there as a, as a, a you know, a technical, experienced coach with a record of keeping clubs in the Premier League. So, you know, he won't want my advice, but if, if he asked for it, I would say, don't feel any pressure at all. It's not your money. They can afford it. Just get on with the job of trying to pick some points up. Yeah. Is that money well spent, you think, Migs? Probably just in the sense that if relegation comes down to the base quality of the squads involved, you would say that, yes, Newcastle have better players than those around them. Probably, probably everyone, Bar Everton. Um, Trippier and Wood alone probably just lift the squad sufficiently. But, of course, that's where all this actually gets a little bit difficult because you've got the great unknown of throwing so many players into one situation in such an intense period of time under a manager who, whatever about assessments of how his overall career and his job at Bournemouth, it, this is still an unknown from his career as well. We, we, we don't know how he's going to adapt to having to... I mean, he's already had this initial bending in period where he's trying to oppose his approach, which at Bournemouth was nurtured over so many years with a squad he pretty much handpicked. So he's already tried to impose it on, let's say, the first phase of this Newcastle squad under his ownership. And now we've very quickly got a second phase and all these new players having to come in. Then the kind of extra complications of <laughs> half the squad being new in, and or sorry, half the team being new in, and the rest of the squad who know, I think as we said before in the podcast, 
they're playing for someone else's future. And there's the chemistry there is volatile. I think they 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 probably got enough quality to stay up, but there are just there's sufficient variables to not make it a, a foregone conclusion by any means. They, I, I suppose the one thing in now is after the defeat of Leeds, they've just got that little bit of momentum. But it's why again this this game against Everton, it's yet another hinge match in their season. It's true. It's you know, I suppose in terms of management careers, it's it's a bit of, bit of hopscotch sometimes, isn't it, Paul? You know, each of them both. Howe and Lampard have had to bide their time and wait for their opportunity, uh, which is, you know, in many cases a career-defining dilemma. I don't know if you agree that each manager seems to have been damned with faint praise. You know, Howe's work, people are a bit sniffy about his work at Bournemouth. Specifically with Frank Lampard, is the negativity towards him that you hear, oh, you know, what's he done to deserve the job, all that sort of stuff, is that fair or justifiable? It's interesting. I mean, Eddie Howe overachieved at a small club and Frank Lampard, in the eyes of Roman Abramovich anyway, underachieved at a big club. It doesn't take much to underachieve at Chelsea. We should stress that. He had 18 months there, sacked in January 2021, took them to the FA Cup final, got them into the Champions League, promoted a lot of young players, given £200 million to spend or not given it. Or, you know, we know how money is spent at Chelsea is often not spent by the manager. And they were ninth when he was sacked. The big issue, I think, there was the goals conceded and the susceptibility to set pieces and so on. They weren't, they were too easy to score against. And I think that was the, the big lesson for Frank Lampard of his first, you know, Premier League job. And I'm sure he's learned from it because it's interesting that he's taken Ashley Cole with him to Everton, not just as a mate, one would think, but also as a as a as a defensive thinker and coach. So you know, he knows that managing Everton in a relegation battle is not like managing Chelsea for Roman Abramovich, and he has to bring a different set of skills to it. It's a, it's a much more, it's a grittier, more structural, organisational job than the Chelsea one was. But it's it's a good test for him because if he can, if he can get the team and the club going, which I think he will, because he's a he's a big character and a personality. He knows what he's doing. I think the fans have already taken to him a bit, haven't they? They, they were showing banners, displaying banners, saying "Welcome to Everton," and. I think they can see that they've got a chance with him because it's not guaranteed by any means, but he has he has a lot of the attributes to at least get Everton, you know, into mid-table and then we'll see from there. Well, what's just on the staff, yeah, what's also interesting is that given Jody Morris had been considered pretty much, <laughs> to put it, like to Lampard, what I say, Jesus Perez was to Pochettino, it's interesting he hasn't brought him with him. There were a few accounts from Chelsea that, I mean, by the end... Lampard had a really frosty relationship with some of the senior pros and Morris didn't particularly help with that. So it's interesting already that in his, in his third job, he hasn't brought Morris with him and the makeup of that staff is different. Now, maybe it shows evolution, maybe it shows, as you say, wanting to do things a different way or it's a different job, but certainly that's already one striking change we've seen. But that's true, isn't it, Miggs? You know, what he's having to do is is almost balance the existing culture in the form of... Duncan Ferguson with with trusted staff, you know Paul Clement, and as Paul mentioned there, Ashley Cole. Are we seeing here, Migs, with Ashley Cole in particular, that almost like the reinvention of the caricature? You know, we all know about Cashley, media unfriendly player, mm. very defensive personality. Now suddenly he's he's transformed into a you know good pundit and and, and a really promising coach. Yeah, completely. I mean, I don't think it's actually an exaggeration to say that at a certain points of Cole's career, particularly around 2012, when I think he had that 
misguided tweet about the FA, which is kind of an idea where he was portrayed as basically, uh, yes, a brilliant player. What on the flip side, kind of the worst excesses of that England golden generation. That's what he was rightly or wrongly held up as. And yeah, a caricature had developed around him. And I think now, just that's been the real benefit of his, his media work. And it's interesting how this sometimes happens. And you, you can even argue there's been similarity with Roy Keane. Given for a lot of Roy Keane's career, he was kind of dismissed in some quarters as right, a, a very good player, but a, you know, a, an aggressive thug. And media work for all the kind of, for all it's kind of maligned in some quarters, but it's allowed them to show them real, their, their real selves. And bring maybe a greater warmth towards. But I think that that has happened with Cole, where he he's shown what a perceptive football mind he is that's now kind of fed in to this coaching career where there's a great deal of optimism about him. And yeah, it's, it's almost... It's interesting the way it can happen in football sometimes like that, basically, that um, careers actually have... There's no one career. There's actually a fair few acts to it. And certainly the coaching career can be very different to the playing career. And that's something else as well, given whatever about all the off-field stuff, Actually, Cole's one of uh, England's arguably best ever left backs and uh, one of uh, the country's most decorated players. Sure. There's going to be a very strong redemption theme about Everton, isn't there, Paul? I just want to concentrate on Deli Alley, if I could. I think we all probably would agree that there is a player there beneath that beanie hat. Is he the sort of player who responds to a more emotionally intelligent form of management? You know, you had that with Carl Robinson at Milton Keynes, Pochettino at Spurs. And it was it was not a coincidence, probably, that his, his style waned under Mourinho. Can they get the best out of Ali? Well, my first thought was that £40 million, pounds, if it ends up costing them that, is an awful lot to spend on someone who appears to have lost interest in his own career. Quite a risky thing to do, really. And... I just feel that Deli Ali shouldn't be looking to a manager to try and get him going again. He shouldn't be relying on Frank Lampard, you know, to sort his career out for him. He's, it's got to come from him. He's got to do it himself. And he'd stagnated at Spurs. A succession of managers looked at him and thought, Mm-mm, no thanks. His work rate wasn't nearly high enough. Didn't seem particularly bothered at times. You know, maybe he got the, uh, the, the kind of Spurs <clears throat> ennui and it wasn't, you know, it was partly to do with the club and his environment. Perhaps he lost faith in the in the whole operation there. But this is his chance to go out and show that he's still a, a hungry, committed footballer. Because if he doesn't, really, that's the end for him. But Frank Lampard can help him so much, but he can't solve the problem for him. Mm. Do you think, you know, we're looking at relegation in the round, Migs, that, that the dynamics have been changed by the window? Yeah, completely. And not just in terms of transfers, also in terms of signing, or sorry, in terms of managerial appointments. And the way I was looking at it last week when I did a piece on it was basically, I think it's interesting in the sense that the three squads you would probably consider the worst quality overall, coming back to that we said about Newcastle, probably have the most, the greatest guarantees in terms of managers just because we know exactly what they're about in this sort of situation. Roy Hodgson, of course, has been around the block for years and we know he'll organise Watford in the way they haven't been organised in some time. Sean Dyche, okay, Burnley have actually been on, they've probably been on, on the decline for some time now and kind of maybe diminishing returns, but it's still a Sean Dyche-Burnley team. And Dean Smith, he has, I suppose, experience closer to this, say, than Eddie Howe, given he took over Villa mid-season, took them up, kept them up. There are at least some similarities 
with Norwich or a close similarities. Whereas Howe, a better squad than all, all three of those now, but as we say, he's been thrown into a situation we've never seen him deal with before. And maybe the bigger question there is how suited the style of football he wants to impose is to an, as intense a period as this. And with Lampard, it's it's pretty much an unknown given this is, he's in his third job now, and it's a job of very different profile to his previous two, which for themselves were so different. Again, you would think, I mean, really, everything just shouldn't be as low as they are. They, I mean, they, they even, even, and I know there's so many questions about the recruitment and everything, which does feed into bigger issues, which explains why they are where they are. But still, the quality is sufficient that they shouldn't be hovering over the relegation zone. So if they kind of correct themselves in any way, they should be out of it. But again, we come to this big game, this uh, in Newcastle's trip to Goodison. Yeah, with Watford, and you know, we know Roy Hodgson, we know his MO, you know, players talk about his repetitive training ground drills as if it's been, they're being hit over there by you know, a block of wood. But it works, doesn't it? You know, they did so at West Brom, it did at Fulham, it did at Palace. The first clean sheet in 31 at Burnley, and they now, now go to West Hampool. That's going to be an interesting one, isn't it? That, the, the performance at Kidderminster was a bit of a, a wake-up call. But also, is this game going to be a barometer of the fans and the relationship with the owner? Because there's a lot of discontent going on there, isn't there? Yeah, the West West Ham are at a, a kind of a, a big crossroads, really. You know, we, we're all wondering whether they're, they're coming to the end of the gold Sullivan era at a point, uh, at an upswing in their, in their kind of history, really, when they've got a, a, a manager who's given the team an identity, a really increasingly impressive group of players. They're a bit thin, as we know. If they get injuries, they start to struggle. But they, they're doing ever so well, West Ham. They're definitely making progress. They've got an idea and a plan. But nobody really knows what's going to happen with the club. And, you know, the whole thing with the London Stadium and the relationship with the taxpayer and that sense a lot of us got that they were just... That Golden Sullivan were, were really just taking advantage of, of what looked like a, a really good deal to get out of Upton Park and move into the old London 2012 Olympic Stadium. I think that phase in their history is obviously coming to an end now. And, and if they do cash in, the current owners, it opens up the, a massive uncertainty about who's going to who, who would buy them and what sort of club they would become. You know, would a would a, a Middle Eastern sovereign wealth fund step in? Would an oligarch step in? Would an American hedge fund, you know, try and take them over? So if if, if I were a West Ham fan, I'd I'd really be wondering what sort of club we're about to become, good or bad. Mm. With Watford, obviously they were at Burnley, Migs at the weekend. Goalless draw, Watford's first clean sheet in 31. I was quite surprised to learn that the, 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 there were boos after that game from the Turf Moor crowd. Looking at the positive sides, they got Manchester United at Turf Moor on Tuesday. What about that FA Cup fallout for United? It was... I mean, in and of itself, it's just... it's The FA... All right, they're going to go at least half a decade now without a trophy... Well, unless they're in the Champions League, which, of course, you, you they're not exactly on Champions League winning form. And then that's been said about clubs in the past. And given that their opposition are Atletico Madrid, who are arguably having an even worse season than Manchester United. I mean, so, so we, we have seen, say, with Chelsea 2012, Liverpool 2005, sometimes these, these things can play into those hands. But, of course, you do, need, you do need a response from the team in Europe as well. And that's what United are basically banking on at the moment. 
that they kind of have this spike because the general season is just one of malaise, of dysfunction, of a huge disconnect at all levels of the club, really, from the squad to the manager, between some of the players. And most of all at the moment, we're a really disgruntled fan base who are just so aghast at the direction of the club. But given that we went into this season after they signed Cristiano Ronaldo with talk of a title or a potential title challenge. So in that, I know there's been a lot of discussion about how this has been potentially the worst season since 73-74. Probably going to have to look at some... Probably actually Ferguson's last season just before winning the FA Cup was particularly grim with actually very few signs that things are going to change. And I suppose the difference in the modern game is that because of their sheer wealth, they're kind of insulated from a, from a, a certain level of fall in the way they weren't in the late 80s. But maybe I think that when people say that, I think it's much, just more about the general, I suppose everything going on this season where it went in with such optimism, the expenditure of Ronaldo, well, and then how quickly it t- tailspun Solskjaer, who whatever about his merits as a manager is ultimately a club legend who was usually popular figure to to be to lose his job in the way he did, and just the way it's kind of continued on from that, and it ju- it just it, there's just this gloom around the club right now, and and it, the one the one thing I would say in all this, whatever about the Champions League this season, I remember there was um in in twenty sixteen. There were all sorts of similar things said about Chelsea, the Chelsea squad after Mourinho got sacked, and I, you know, we all remember the kind of the rats banners and all sorts of questions about a broken club culture. But once they got the right coach in, it was remarkable how quickly it changed. A lot of those same players won the title under Antonio Conte just over a year later. Now another difference is Chelsea have a United in a, situ- a similar situation, but there are questions over getting the right man in, and I suppose it's a bit different. In at that point in twenty sixteen. Man City and Liverpool say we're just beginning to kind of form the modern structures that have made them now the pretty much the peak of the game. So from that perspective, despite United's wealth, it's that bit harder. And again, it's a club that just, we don't know where they're going, but not just the next step, but the next few steps are crucial to suggesting where. Mm. Yeah, Mick spoke, spoke about management there, Paul. Do you think, one, that Ronaldo... At- Happy birthday for being 37 at the weekend. Is he a problem that needs to be addressed? But does Ralph Ranick have the authority to make the big call on him? And does that uncertainty underpin everything? Yeah, I see Ronaldo posted a picture of that birthday cake with a number 30 made in the shape of a 37. It was probably the most worrying birthday cake a Manchester United fan has ever seen because... (laughs) Because, you know, one of the possibly the greatest player in their history is, you know, heading towards 40 at a rate of knots. It's not going to make them feel any better, even though it was nice to see. I feel that Ralph Ranick's appointment was massively oversold. It was, it was oversold at the time, and now we're seeing the reality of it. I think he was kind of hailed as this kind of tactical master, professor, genius. Uh, don't get me wrong, he's an extremely intelligent and influential man. But the idea that he was going to walk in there and just by changing the formation was going to solve all Manchester United's problems just didn't make sense to me. And it's already apparent that the players don't see him as a particularly as an authority figure because they know he'll be gone in May. If you appoint for someone for six months, 
they can't possibly have a radical manifesto, particularly in a dressing room like that, which will which will down tools on you quite quickly, as uh, other Manchester United managers have discovered. So it was unrealistic to expect Rangnick to solve all the kind of deep-seated cultural problems in that squad, the imbalances, and particularly this, this culture problem they have where if things are going badly, the players switch off and they only have to switch off 10% in the Premier League, as, as we know, and suddenly they're seventh or eighth in the table. And yeah, I just I just feel that 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 it's only really the appointment of a, a new full time A list manager and the clear out of players who are, who are prone to that kind of um, switching off is ever going to solve Manchester United's problem, and and that's still a long way off. And poor old Ranić is discovering what other Manchester United managers are discovering, which is that he doesn't have as much as authority as he thought he did. Mm. And given all that, makes you know, could you see Burnley? We know what they're going to do. They've got Veghorst now, who is of the stature, physically anyway, that he can probably discomfort any sort of half-hearted defenders. Can you see Burnley doing a number at Old Trafford? Yeah, in fact, it might actually be, given the situation Burnley have been in, and as you say, the, the boos at Turf Moor, the team that went so long without playing, given so many postponements and the, uh, the Omicron situation... This might be one of those games that suddenly feeds into their, plays into their hands, and also for all the gloom about Burnley, they're going into a, into a stadium where none of the focus will be on them. It's going to be all about Manchester United, so it's almost a free hit in that sense. And it could yeah it could just be one of those matches then that allows for Burnley a, a precious win at this point. It's the sort of win that can actually transform your outlook at this stage of the season and uh, hoist further um, glue Monty United. I, I, I can definitely see it happen. And, and, and as, you, as you mentioned about V-Course there as well, just it, it, was, it was one of the things that struck about the Middlesbrough game as well, actually. That United actually started that game quite well. Really fast football. Looked like they kind of, I mean, and, and again, at, at that point, I suppose the allowance we made, it was against the championship squad. But also, it's, it's maybe one of those performances that happens when a team is actually under a certain amount of pressure, they often, I remember when he used to uh, ghostwrite Stephen Hunt's column, where he said, he made the point that, well, you'll often see what teams are form, they'll start games well, before after 20 minutes they just dissipate because it kind of, it, it runs out of steam, it's on, it's on adrenaline, it's on, it's on, it's on the, the will to make a point. And there might be a bit of an element about that about United before, if things don't go their way, they just succumb to, to, to recent flaws to, to so many weaknesses built up into that team and in that sense given how vulnerable the defence looks given how the cost of any slip and the knowledge of that uh, V-Course could well really kind of fancy his chances against that that fragile defence mm. The other participants in the in the relegation tango Norwich they're at home to Palace on Wednesday Paul before we dwell on them I just want to talk about Palace if I could you know we do accentuate the negative sometimes, don't we? But I just want to try and give credit where it's due with with Crystal Palace. I don't know if you share my aberration for the way that they've behaved as a club recently, you know, by offering long-term post-football care to young players that they've released. And on Saturday, making a donation towards the cancer treatment for the wife of Hartlepool manager Graham Lee which I thought was a fantastic gesture. And it's maybe something that we, we need a little bit more of in football, that, that, that warmth and almost like humanity. 
Definitely, football clubs can do an enormous amount of good and they can send all sorts of messages in society because the thing, the thing with football is we often look at it now, modern football at the top, and think that it's a, it's a valueless world, you know, it's a, it's a free-for-all sort of Darwinian world. But actually, football clubs can offset that to some degree by showing that they understand what matters to fans and, and, and trying to help people, trying to give something back, really showing themselves to be part of something bigger than a, a huge money chase. And Crystal Palace are pretty well placed to do that, I think, because they're in a, if you think about the community they're in, you know, they're in a huge area of South London where there are quite high levels of deprivation in some places. And and they, they, they have strong community roots. And I think, you know, maybe if the owners are realising that they can, they can be more than just a mid-table team uh, with a modest budget, they can actually stand for something as well, then, you know, we can only applaud that. Mm. And Norwich, of course, Megs, you know, they are a you know, strong community-minded club of, uh, in their own right as well. What would you think the impact would be of the? This would be their third Premier League win on the bounce if they win on uh, on Wednesday. You know, coming off the back of that win at Wolves in the FA Cup. Yeah, I'm trying to think um, of the last time that even happened at the club. <laughs> I mean, it, it certainly escapes me. But yeah, and, and we we talk about uh, the effect that he sort of runs at the top. How you know, Anthony? Well, these days it's actually. You need a you need a win of eleven wins at the top to challenge or to kind of secure titles there. But at the bottom, a run of three can be completely transformative and completely shift both the emphasis and the tone. And I think, and that's pretty much what's happened actually, because it's not too long ago where even after Dean Smith's appointment, but despite the respect for Dean Smith, there was a sense that I mean it was one of those things you just heard in football. And Norwich are gone. Uh, whereas now, I don't think anyone can say that with great confidence. That's the effect of that run, well, the two of two wins so far. And if they get a third, yeah, it, it really does all the things. And certainly that's one situation where Everton and Newcastle should be well, it'll it'll ramp up the pressure for their game their game, certainly. Hmm. One thing that is consistent about football, Paul, is that sort of soap operatic quality that we see sometimes. On that theme, Spurs are at home to Southampton midweek. Conte. Very pointedly referring to transfer mistakes, in inverted commas. This one could go either way, couldn't it? Yeah, the mistakes he was talking about, of course, were mistakes made in the past. And what he was saying is that he's paying the price for those mistakes now. And Dombele and Lo Celso both going out on, on loan. Lamella, of course, has, has left as well. You know, there's there's been a, a, a stripping back of... Of some very expensive players, Dali Ali has gone to Everton, and I, I think he's within his rights to say that in in trying to correct those past errors, the you know the current activity hasn't been particularly impressive, has it? Let's face it, they got Rodrigo Bentenka for twenty one million pounds, Kulishevsky. That's not really going to fill the gaps that have been left by these departing players. So. I have limited sympathy for Conte, though, because he knew exactly what he was signing up to. He signed an enormous contract, a very lucrative contract, to stay there for what was 18 months, I think. He will have done his homework. He knows how the club operates. He knows how they hate spending, really, essentially, or spending big. And uh, so he's just really coming face to face with the reality of something that should have been obvious to him when he signed up. But that said, he's you know he's within his rights to keep chafing and chivying and, and, and trying to get the culture to change, but it certainly didn't change in that window, that's for sure. 
Yeah, I suppose also you don't have to look too far to your mix to, to see signs of a club in transition, if not in turmoil. There's a, been a talent drain from senior management. Steve Hitchin, who's well, well respected in, in the recruiting world, he was the latest to leave. <laughs> I also noticed with a smile, Paratici was purportedly approached by PSG. You do get the sense that uh, most people there are looking after number one, aren't they? Yeah, and we're getting to the point in football where for all their wealth, actually because of their wealth, <laughs> any sort of approach from Paris Saint-Germain, maybe it's not necessarily the best reflection anymore, given how dysfunctional that club has been. But yeah, it just it's amazing how quickly it's happened, how quickly Spurs have squandered the really kind of... I mean, there was a period under Pochettino where they're basically England's version of Borussia Dortmund, punching above their weight, overachieving... And that with a really good young core of players, and also for for a brief period, and I think a lot of this was down to Hitchin, if also the way the way these things have to work, Hitchin and his operation being in unison with what the manager wanted, which is exactly what's happening in Liverpool now, where where signings seem to work, and now we have the, a complete one eighty on that, and they just seem, it's you know again it's it's a club where so many decisions all over don't make sense even and right up to the sense that Paratici was brought in as a transfer guru and in this in his first window a lot of those signings have moved on which Conte specifically complained about and now in a second where there was a concerted attempt to bring players in the only two players he can bring in are from his former club in deals that they basically used to sign a player one of the most sought after strikers in Europe who Tottenham were interested in last summer <laughs> that's but that, that that more than anything shows their place in the market, and 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 that's the thing with around this whole issue of recruitment like that. When you're a club like Spurs or like Everton for that matter, you've got to be ahead of the game. You've got you've got to get the next talent to be sharper than the market. Whereas it, it just, I mean, you're not going to be ahead of the market where you're scrambling around for deals on the last day of the window. And I think it does say a lot about uh, Spurs' current situation. Conte is one of the best managers in, in the world, particularly for getting players to play above themselves. But I think where the frustration will come in from his part is that, yeah, I completely agree with Paul. He knew what he was getting into. But maybe just to kind of... The circumstances have altered a little because you wouldn't have... Manchester Manchester United are obviously a much wealthier club than Spurs with a much better squad right now with so much attacking talent. And you, you would have previously considered well, almost one of those top four places nailed off. Whereas in the last month, partly through the work of Conte for that defeat to Chelsea, there was an opening and there is an opening. And maybe that's one thing I've been told anyway, that Conte has been frustrated because he can see there's an opportunity there this season to almost finish in the Champions League ahead of schedule. But that may be dependent on transfers or lack of them, where you think maybe one more signing to just lift the level of that team and Spurs could actually be in the best place to finish top four. Whereas now, that actually seems like, even more so the relegation battle, maybe, the most unpredictable race of all. Yeah, you can see Spurs being a, a cup team, I think, and did well at, in the FA Cup. They're getting players back. Christian Romero was back in the back three at the weekend. Paul, what about the importance of Humming Son's return? Is he arguably a more pivotal player to Spurs than even Harry Kane, who's got his 15 goals, you know, without us really noticing. But, you know, he's a key, isn't he? 
Yeah, he's certainly kind of vital to their when they're playing counter-attacking football. He's absolutely demonic, isn't it? Isn't he, Son? I mean, he, you know, he can cut you open. He's got he he makes great runs. He's got great spatial awareness. Got a good touch. He's he's the perfect foil for Harry Kane. But he's also an extremely good player in his own right. And you know, if if Conte can get Kane and Son playing together properly, and to my mind, that would be. Harry Kane in the number nine position, not wandering all over the pitch. I still, I've still never understood why he was ever allowed to do that at Spurs. You know, when he's a central striker, Son. When Spurs have been good, you you always felt that Son had an understanding of Harry Kane's movements and vice versa. So Son didn't look quite back to you know full sharpness when I saw him the other day. But when he is, it's vital for Spurs that they get that combination working well again. Mm. Liverpool on Thursday, I mean, you mentioned them earlier, they resume against Leicester. That's suddenly become a very important game for Brendan Rodgers after that desperate performance at Forest, isn't it? Yeah, and also that um, there's just that perception now that's starting to grow about Brendan Rodgers and that, well, he's obviously, on in terms of just pure coaching, he's brilliant. Where it comes to the development of his teams, that it's as if they kind of, they reach a certain point can't get past that point, which I suppose now with, with, with Leicester specifically is two seasons of trying to get into the, into the Champions League despite that FA Cup win, which is somewhat unfair given that even finishing fifth for Leicester actually in the modern game, it's very much overachieving. But it's more so, I suppose, once a Rodgers team gets to that point, it's the speed of decline. Now, again, I suppose, for me, there are significant caveats here, not least the injury to Wesley Fafana which pretty much shaped their whole season and set them back, really. They've been so all, maybe, all over the place, haven't they, Migs, defensively? Yeah, that, that's exactly, and it, and, it, and it comes from that. I think for, for, it, it was actually, I think, I think that's maybe one of the one of the issues you can say with, with Leicester. Generally with Leicester up until this season, what you would say is any time they lost a player, the succession line was so strong. So you know, Harry, Harry Maguire being replaced, eventually replaced by Fana being one of them. But this is one situation actually weren't ready for, which is a long-term injury to a core player in that way. And it does seem to have destabilised him to quite a profound degree. Now, whether that's something that's recoverable, I would, I think it should be. But yeah, you're, you're completely right. Rodgers needs results and fast. I mean, he's very much a process manager in the, uh, overall with kind of results naturally followed from the process. But this is one, one situation where Results need to come quite quick. So, Liverpool, Paul, you know, let's be honest, I think there's been a bit of a, almost a colonial attitude towards the African Cup of Nations, but, you know, they've, they've certainly negotiated that effectively. A bit ambitious to play Salah and Mane on Thursday, isn't it? Yes. When you, when you uh, factor in the, the physical cost uh, of playing in a African Nations Cup final and the emotional fallout from it, and you know, looking at it, it was a pretty uh, exhausting and emotional occasion as well. So to expect them to get home when Monday, Tuesday, and then walk straight into a game on on Thursday, very unlikely, I'd have thought. And Jurgen Klopp wouldn't take that risk, I suspect, particularly as uh, you know, he's got he's got several players playing well anyway in those positions. He's got a new player in, uh, Louise, and Jota is obviously, you know, in good nick. 
You've got the Harvey Elliott's back. Curtis Jones is there to, you know, to play in attacking midfield positions. So there shouldn't really be any any need to do it. And he won't be thinking of one game. He'll be thinking of the rest of the season. Mm. Harvey Elliott's some player, isn't he? He's going to be some player. Yeah, it was so nice to see him score that goal. I remember it was one of those shocking in- injuries at the time. He, you know, we thought it was worse than a dislocated ankle, but it it, it was a it was a gruesome one that you had to sort of turn away from, and it and it felt awful for him. So to see him back relatively quickly from that and scoring a lovely goal on the turn, and to see his celebration and the joy around the club and the and on the bench from from him being able to do that, it was it was quite a moment that I thought. Yeah, there's there some lovely footage on social media of his dad in the stands. It was great, you know, being slapped on the back by stewards. And it was excellent. But anyway, Manchester City, they got Brentford on Wednesday at home, uh, Migs. They're, our City, probably more than any other club or team, all about just the marginal games. It was very interesting to read Guardiola's admission that he struggled initially with... Uh, uh, Yao Can- Cancelo, his management style is just intriguing, isn't it? Yes, completely. And I, I think one of the best ways to almost put this city is, or actually, not so much city, but maybe city in the sense of what Guardiola says about him, that he's the perfect manager for what the club is in so many ways, but also in the way in the way they work, in that. And, and it's quite ironic because given despite all the beauty of his football and particularly the beauty of his Barcelona team and the emotions they conjure it's the same whatever it's not so much it's beyond marginal gain so almost the pure industrialization of football and as much as 11 humans on a pitch can do taking as much jeopardy and chaos out of that as possible and I, I think that's actually one of the kind of the the core themes of Guardiola's career. And it's one of the reasons why uh, the Champions League has proven so elusive, why the Champions League, I think, causes them to make strange decisions, because there is that extra element of chaos to the games because they are, well, if not one-off, but, but two-legged games that are sudden death. And I, there's so many, even the last few weeks have been so many interesting comments in, in that regard from Guardiola, where like there was that one he had recently about I think it was after the Chelsea game where he said like I, I love that game because it's a game we deserve to win whereas you can tell that that's one of the things that for so frustrates him most about the Champions League where over pretty much over the last decade what a Pep Guardiola team has probably been the best team in Europe maybe what at, at the very least five out of ten seasons maybe more than that one at Barcelona 2012 probably two at Bayern maybe three or four now at City but despite being the best despite dominating some knockout games they still succumb through just the glorious chaos of football. And Guardiola's entire career, every aspect of it, right right up to kind of the way he uses defensive midfielders, the decision that Champions League final even, is to try and take away that element of chaos. And, you know, almost taking marginal gains to their ultimate conclusion. Hence you see the, the, um, the trademark City goal being the cutback to... Uh, a finish from about six to seven yards out because of course what that's uh, I suppose in some in some circles they'd call the position of maximum opportunity really high XG you're always going to score that, that's what they're trying to do fashion the ball into areas where they cannot miss that's the that that's Guardiola's whole football taken to its natural conclusion and it's it can be obviously 
aesthetically pleasing and yet in terms of excitement sometimes a little bit underwhelming now paul i don't want to intrude on private grief but news has just broken that dan ashworth has resigned as technical director at brighton there are very strong reports that after a period of gardening leave he's going to join newcastle as director of football obviously that's a key appointment and a very significant move what's your reaction to it uh, i'm slightly surprised because the club brighton were quite confident i think that they could keep dan ashworth they uh i think they would have you know offered him more money to stay frankly and perhaps they they, they were hoping i think that you know the everything that goes with working for Newcastle, getting employed by the owners there might put him off because he's got such a kind of impeccable reputation in the game. You know, let's face it, there is a there is a kind of moral gamble in joining the um, the hierarchy at Newcastle United because of who they're owned by. Also, the, the pressure and expectation that will now be on him to transform the team in 12 months to make magical signings here, there and everywhere. Uh, he would probably say that uh, wherever he's going, if he does go to Newcastle, it will be to actually put a structure in place rather than uh, go out and just buy £100 million players. Uh, it's a big loss to Brighton because the, the 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 sort of golden chain of command from Tony Bloom, Dan Ashworth, Paul Barber through to Graham Potter has been working like a dream. Although Brighton, I think, will hope that Dan Ashworth already done his best work at Brighton. He's already created the structure and the culture. And that from now on is just about trading players into a structure that's working very well. But if if he does go to Newcastle, then uh, there's no doubt that he will he will help sort that club out to a to a great degree. Yeah, Migs, you're off to Abu Dhabi with Chelsea tomorrow for the Club World Cup. Greatest respect in the world, mate. It will be their first intercontinental trophy if they win it or when they win it. Does anyone really care? Uh, I don't think anyone cares about the trophy itself. I think, and one of the reasons actually we found it quite interesting to be travelling is we should care in terms of the future of football in that, especially this year, given it's going to end with a Qatari World Cup and on the other side of the political blockade, or sorry, the political tension that uh, Qatar have been on are Abu Dhabi. And also there's the very fact it's being, it's being hosted in Abu Dhabi, a competition like this, uh, so I suppose the way we're seeing almost from a coverage point of view we're, we're not necessarily going to the Club World Cup we're going to what is has become the centre of world football and I, I think that's and, and, and let's not forget actually while no one cares about the Club World Cup now I totally agree with that it's always been kind of an adornment to the season or it's kind of just a, almost a, a, yeah, an international community shield after you win the Champions League it is it's this, especially given the kind of the politics that are going to be around the Club World Cup this week, where it's going to be a who's who, how Infantino has been positioning himself around FIFA, and given kind of some of the undercurrents to the political situation in the game, let's not forget, before COVID, one of the big plans for next year was for the Club World Cup to be held in China and be uh, what we being backed by what we think would have been Saudi money and, and involving 32 clubs and involving such an influx of cash that it could have disrupted to disrupted the game to as great a degree as any Super League just because of the sheer amount of money that would have been involved. 
those plans I would say have been parked rather than necessarily have been destroyed even by the Super League and that's why that's why even if even if the, the current Club World Cup is as kind of um, negligible as it has been for the past two decades it's in a both geographically and in terms of where the competition might be in the future it's actually in quite an interesting place right now there's a lot this is going to this is I think a competition more interested in the politics around it than for the actual games being played. Yeah, and just to finish it all off, really, Paul, it is another FIFA land grab, isn't it? And you know, when you think about it, uh, there's, there's now talk about an African Super League. We, this is only going one way, isn't it? The direction that, that football's heading. Yeah, it's an arms race, and uh, oh, we just have to keep in mind that you know FIFA. Wanted a World Cup every two years. That that just tells you everything you need to know about this this battle for rights, this battle for prominence, this battle for the players' time that's going on, uh, fueled by colossal wealth, fueled by nation states, you know, and geopolitics. As Miguel's saying, you know, tournaments in in China, they're trying to sort of annex Africa and you know create a Super League there potentially. Uh, uh, this mentality, which nearly brought us a well, didn't nearly it collapsed on day one, but you know, a European Super League. Uh, <laughs> uh, fans will be looking at it and saying, you know, who are these people really, and what on earth do they think they're doing? Yeah, sometimes we need a, a bit of a, a reality check, and in in some ways that came from the African Cup of Nations, which you know, as we now know, was won by Senegal on Sunday night in a penalty shootout against Egypt. Inevitably, I suppose, uh, British interest was focused on the subplot involving Liverpool teammates Sadio Mane and Mo Salah. You know, the football might have been dire, but that misses the point. Leading African players are benefactors, supporters of their community in a way that we over here probably struggle to comprehend. I'll let Mane explain. Why would I want 10 Ferraris 20 diamond watches or two planes, he said. I built schools, a stadium. We provide clothes, shoes, food for people who are in extreme poverty. I prefer that my people receive a little of what life has given me. That might just be the best winner's speech I've ever heard. So a special thanks today to Paul and Miguel for their insight. And thank you for listening to the Football Writers Podcast. Listener.